Hello and welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our much-appreciated radio syndicate partners, or on our podcast at greenmajority.ca. The first 40 minutes of our show today features an interview I recently conducted with Professor Stephen Sharper at the University of Toronto. So I'm, uh, I'm joined okay, at the beginning of our show today with Professor Stephen Sharper, who is a professor of environmental studies, religious studies, and anthropology at the University of Toronto and the University of Toronto Mississauga. And he is the co-editor of The Natural City, Re-Envisioning Human Settlements, and the author of For Earth's Sake, Toward a Passionate Ecology. So thank you very much, Stephen Sharper, for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. It's great to be here. So I've heard you speak of hearing God within. I'm wondering, what is the relationship between environmentalism and this kind of inner listening? Hmm, Great question. I think that one of the keys to spirituality, which is kind of a fundamental dimension of most religious traditions, is seeing the awesomeness of the divine within the unfolding of nature. And how do we experience that? In myriad ways, obviously. For some of the scholars who are working in this area, they're retrieving ancient mystical traditions of connectivity of the human to the created world. One of these scholars is Thomas Berry, a cultural historian and geologian, not a theologian. He called himself a geologian. Mm. And he talked about the need to listen to nature for our spiritual subtlety. He said, we've lost the ability to listen to nature particularly in a modern society, with all the cacophonies of our conveniences and all our technological interfaces with Mm -hmm. the natural world, we're losing the ability to listen to nature. This isn't only an environmental problem. Mm -hmm. It's a spiritual problem. So, for example, where do we get this wondrous idea of the divine? Well, for him, it's through the wondrous diversity of the universe itself. And when we can't see the night sky because it's occluded by air pollution and light pollution, we're missing out on what was a great inspiration for all the world's great religious scriptural traditions. The universe, for him, is the primary source of revelation, including the created world. It's in response to that that we get our religious and spiritual traditions, in response to that wondrous diversity and awesome beauty. When we no longer can see or listen to that, it truncates and abbreviates our spiritual capacities. Mm. So the basis of much spirituality and much traditional religious narrative is in the ability to see and listen to God's opening gambit, i.e. the universe itself, Mm -hmm. in Mm self-communication. Some write about this in the Christian tradition as two books of Revelation, the book of nature and the scripture of the universe, Mm. that both must be read together to understand our place in the universe. If we just go with one and not the other, Mm. then somehow we won't receive the kind of infused wisdom that is available to us. Mm -hmm. Does this kind of quietude and listening to nature itself proceed from the subject or does it proceed from the experience of nature? So does the environmentalism arise from the act of listening? Or does the, or does the nature uh, engender that activity in the first place? That's a very helpful and perceptive question. In my understanding, 
there's agency in non-human nature. Mm. And so this is not simply a one-way enterprise. Mm -hmm. That nature also communicates to us. Mm -hmm. So, again, to refer to the work of Thomas Berry, for him, the universe is a communion of subjects, mm -hmm. not a collection of objects. Mm -hmm. In a sense, there's a subjective psycho-spiritual dimension to all reality, to mm -hmm. all matter. Now, that might sound a little esoteric and beyond the pale, but he roots it in, in science. Mm -hmm. All that we know that exists in the universe comes from the Big Bang, or what he calls the primordial flaring forth. So how do scientific Christians explain evolution mm -hmm. in a spiritual context? Mm -hmm. So this is part of where Thomas Berry and Tyre Deschardin have interpreted the spirit at work in the unfolding of the universe. Mm -hmm. So up until Albert Einstein, no one had proved the unfolding of the universe mathematically, that the universe was expanding. Mm -hmm. The psychic spiritual dimension of all reality comes from an understanding of the Big Bang, mm -hmm. that everything we know today comes from that moment of creation. Mm -hmm. Consciousness comes from that moment of creation. It's not extrinsic to the unfolding evolution mm -hmm. of the universe. Mm -hmm. It's not as if we become homo sapiens and all of a sudden we have consciousness. Mm -hmm. So for these scholars, the antecedents of consciousness were in those atoms that formed the Big Bang, mm -hmm. of helium, etc. That somehow, in some unspecified, mysterious way, mm -hmm. the elements of consciousness were in that moment and in the atoms and molecules that proceeded from mm -hmm. there. If one looks at it that way, then there's a subjective dimension to all reality. Mm -hmm. It was never objective. Mm -hmm. It was never an object because consciousness came from that single moment. It all has a common parentage. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, the universe is a community of subjects, not a collection of objects. Mm -hmm. So when one listens to nature, one is trying to engage in the subjective psycho-spiritual dimension of non-human reality. Mm -hmm. And a lot of scientific research is kind of beginning to analyze this. Mm -hmm. Do trees communicate? Do they communicate with humans? They communicate, it seems, with each other mm -hmm. in ways that we hadn't understood, that they work together in force under the surface, interlocking their root systems to provide stability in windstorms and also sustainable um, kind of connectivities during uh, different kinds of crises, uh, drought, etc. So. Do they communicate with us? Do they communicate with other life forms, with worms, with mm -hmm. birds, with other insects? Is there a kind of dynamism that we overlooked? Mm -hmm. And of course, when this is put into the context of Gaia, the theory of James Lovelock, mm -hmm. which you know, where the Earth is seen as a living, self-regulating organism, that systems on life work together to promote life mm -hmm. and to keep life sustainable. This is his theory. Well, that, again, enters in a kind of dance that involves conversation among different parts of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So it's in part metaphorical, but it's in part scientific. Mm -hmm. What is this listening about? Is it actually a conversation? Mm -hmm. This is one reason why environmentalists and religious scholars are looking anew at indigenous traditions around mm -hmm. the world mm -hmm. that had this deep kinship interconnectivity and conversation with non-human nature. Mm -hmm. 
So traditionally, many anthropologists who were among the first to explore shamanistic traditions from a Western perspective would see communities of very intelligent, very creative tribes or groups of communities in traditional lifestyles having these communications with non-human nature. And they would say, well, these people are intelligent, they're not crazy. This is an allegory or it's metaphor. Mm -hmm. They put it in categories they understood. Mm -hmm. Now, however, some are reconsidering that. Mm. Were we occluded and blocked by our own Western worldview to think that this kind of communication was impossible? One of the anthropologists who has helped re-examine this kind of interpretation is Timothy Ingold. Mm -hmm. And he begins to reflect on the bias that the anthropological Western gaze has had as it approached these indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. Maybe actually there was some dialogue. How do we know that there is not yeah. subjectivity in non-human nature? Mm -hmm. Was that simply a prejudiced carapace we put over our analysis? Mm -hmm. There's an openness now to a new understanding of interrelationality that isn't all exclusively in the area of the humanities or social sciences. It's also scientifically being explored as well. Mm -hmm. E.O. Wilson, the famous Harvard biologist, has this notion of biophilia. And his suggestion is that the human, at the species level, has a natural love of the biotic community. That it is not simply a add-on that poets and mystics have used as an overlay on experience. Mm -hmm. At the species level, we have this deep affective mm -hmm. connection to nature. And that might relate to some actual conversation with and communication with nature mm -hmm. that we don't understand. So when we no longer have that ability to be in dialogue and intimate connection with nature, what does that do to us as a species? Well, there's a suggestion it might pervert us as a species. The ecstasy that we find you know, jumping from a waterfall into a cool pool of water or seeing an exhilarating sunset or running through an incredible thunderstorm. Experiences that many of our ancestors had. If they're no longer available to us, where do we find that rush? Where do we find that ecstasy? Well, we're going to find it elsewhere. But their suggestion is that exhilaration and ecstasy, for example, might have been part of the natural biophilia of the human species with non-human nature. And increasingly, so much is being shown about the connection of human health and relationship to nature. The whole children and nature movement in the United States that is now international shows how important it is for children to be connected to nature mm -hmm. for their psychic and physical well-being. And Richard Louvre, who wrote Last Child in the Woods, Overcoming Nature Deficit Disorder in Our Children, was one of the leaders and pioneers in articulating this by harvesting a lot of research showing these connections. Mm -hmm. This whole notion of forest bathing that is now gaining prominence because mm -hmm. they know what this does psychically to the human when you are surrounded by the beauty of a forest and listen, but also breathing the air, touching the soil, being in direct connection with the earth, how salutary this is mm -hmm. for human psychic and physical well-being. Mm -hmm. And this is being proven in terms of certain chemicals released in the brain, whether mm -hmm. it's serotonin, etc. What is released in our brains? How does that affect our um, chemistry, body mm -hmm. chemistry? These are things that are now being explored by scientists around the world. So there's been 
really interesting strides in the last 20 years around this kind of health-based connectivity research. I imagine there are those who would argue that that kind of experience that you're describing requires from a mature adult perspective an imaginative leap. But of course it's something that can be sensed and doesn't, doesn't actually require a conceptual framework to, ex to experience in a literal way. Mm -hmm. But so the British artist and I would argue devout Christian William, Br William Blake brought all of nature under his sphere of care by anthropomorphizing everything. He said that everything, even something as simple as a tree or a rock, was a person seen from a distance, writing that everything that lives is holy. So, I mean, you've already answered the question, but Thomas Berry says the universe is a communion of subjects. In order to understand that, we must imagine a, a, t a kind of subjective interiority to every phenomenon. But does your sense of the environment, green Christianity, arise from a moral injunction from an analysis of the Bible, or does it arise from uh, your daily experience of your faith? Is the environmental Christian movement that you discuss a product of a deepening experience and a spiritual growth in terms of the individual, or does it derive from certain linguistic or uh, textual analysis? I'd say all of the above, mm -hmm. and that's helpful because I think there are three main ways that religion and ecology interpenetrate. And one way is in the area of cosmology. Mm -hmm. So cosmology in philosophy courses usually is the place of the human in the unfolding of the universe. Mm -hmm. Religiously, it's often the role of the human and the vocation of the human in an unfolding creation. Mm -hmm. And so part of the environmental dialogue with religion and spiritual traditions is this notion of cosmology. What is the place of the human, particularly in light of an environmental morass that we're in? What is our call? What is our place? So that fits in cosmologically. A second question is in terms of spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, what are our spiritual connections to creation and how does that relate to our spiritual traditions, our oral traditions, our written traditions around the divine or around a practice that leads us to greater enlightenment? Mm -hmm. What is the role spiritually of creation in that? Mm -hmm. So this is a trajectory in religious studies that fits in to environmental studies. Mm -hmm. And the third is the role of ethics, because most religious traditions have an ethical framework mm -hmm. and a series of behaviors that are endorsed. So what is the connection between our ethical religious standpoints and this new relationship with the earth mm -hmm. that we're trying to imagine? Are we acting unethically when we destroy creation? Mm -hmm. Is that a problem in terms of traditional ethical precepts in various religious traditions? Mm -hmm. So that's a third area, this notion of ethics. So part of it is at the kind of just spiritual connectivity level, mm -hmm. and part of it is on the relationship of one's ethical traditions and intellectually trying to fit it into a flow of thought in the evolution of mm -hmm. ideas. And so the subjective experiential character of it is something that you would hold is attainable for non-Christians. Absolutely. And so is Christian environmentalism a unique kind of environmentalism only in the sense that it also includes the um, biblical perspective? Well, first I want to just thank you for bringing up William Blake <laughs> because I love his poetry and his personhood. I mean, mm. just such an amazing figure in terms of modernity. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the modern worldview, 
and its approach to nature as an object and the notion of exploiting natural resources from the Hobbesian and Lockean traditions, etc. We forget that Blake is a modern. Mm -hmm. Blake is part of the modern story. Mm -hmm. The romantics are part of the modern story. Mm -hmm. And they're informed by the Judeo-Christian tradition. So there's not one linear monochromatic reading yeah. of modernity. Mm -hmm. And Charles Taylor, you know, the well-known philosopher from McGill, outlines some of this in his book, Sources of the Self. Mm. These are very diffuse tendrils in modernity. Mm. And often for the sake of thumbnail elevator pitch conversations, we reduce modernity to a strong, but nonetheless partial reading mm -hmm. of exploitative, extractive approaches, seeing nature as nasty, brutish, and short in the mm -hmm. Thomas Hobbesian view, and something to be rapaciously developed for our own self-aggrandizement. But there have been lots of waves and undulations in that interpretation and in Western approaches to nature. So I'm so glad you bring up Blake, because he's an example of a Western, or at least a Westernly informed poet artist, who also, infused by the Christian tradition, sees this deep, glorious, wondrous mm -hmm. universe and our place in it with beauty and joy and celebratory energy, which is part of the modern story. Mm -hmm. So part of this is a retrieval. This is happening not only in Christianity. So regarding the question, is Christianity unique in this conversation? It brings its own unique perspective and its own empowered perspective through a Western cultural fusion. Mm -hmm. But it's not unique in the sense that other traditions are not doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. I often compare this moment to a power outage. We have this major environmental crisis. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like the lights have gone out in our house. There's a power failure. So we go up to the attic and we're scrounging around for something from the past that might help us. A candle, a kerosene lamp, something to carry us forward in this moment of darkness. Well, the environmental crisis is akin to that. And the religious traditions are going up to their respective attics and scrounging <laughs> around and picking out certain things. Oh, here's a statue of St. Francis of Assisi. Hmm. I used to have it in my backyard as a lawn ornament, uh, dusting it off. Hmm. Maybe he's not a cartoon character. Maybe what he embodied is something I should learn from. Hmm. Or in Buddhism, the notion of ahimsa, non-harm. Hmm. How is that related now to a modern environmental movement? Maybe it goes beyond my personal scope hmm. and is inviting me into a sociological understanding of non-harm on an international climate scale, mm. for example. Mm. This is happening throughout the religious traditions. And this is how religious traditions grow, when they're confronted with crises. All right, well, with that, we're going to um, take a short music break. And our first song today will be In the Highways by the Peasel Sisters.
welcome back to the Green Majority on CAUT 89.5 FM. We are still speaking with Professor Stephen Sharper from the University of Toronto. And uh, you once stated in an interview with Steve Pakin that leading scientists and environmentalists have asked the Christian church to foster a change of heart in communities of faith and possibly beyond. Do you believe it is incumbent upon environmentalist Christians in particular to address the ways in which the Christian faith is being used to shelter the status quo? Absolutely. I'll give you a story to help illustrate this point. Years ago, Hydro-Quebec did a promotional film, mm -hmm. and they were promoting the damming of the rivers in northern Quebec to create hydropower. Of course, when this was done, the Bourassa government of the time had not consulted with the Cree and the Inuit who would be affected by these massive dam projects. Mm -hmm. In this video that was produced by Hydro-Quebec, as these massive dams were being produced, the voiceover quoted Genesis. Mm. And the quote they used was, and God said, fill the earth and <laughs> subdue it. <laughs> well, at home watching this was a Canadian theologian, Douglas John Hall mm. from the United Church. And Doug Hall was appalled. Mm -hmm. And part of his point is when people of faith see their faith being used toward destructive ends, mm -hmm. whether it's ecological destruction, whether it's racism, whether it's promoting uh, unjust treatment of women, if people are using a tradition to destroy life, then I think there is a demand to speak out. Mm -hmm. Given the um, power of the Christian church in American politics, I imagine you would believe that the Christian church is uniquely positioned to address the ecological crisis. But how, how, to, how to address anti-environmentalism in, in Christianity and, and the tone at which that might be done? Yes, I think the tone is very important. Mm -hmm. Often when I would be asked to address a crowd or speak to an audience, I had the sense the crowd felt, okay, here comes an environmentalist. Yeah. You know, put away all sharp objects. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to hear a doom and gloom thing about how awful we are as human beings. Mm. And a kind of holier-than-thou, sanctimonious, hortatory speech oh, yes. about how we're miserable and we have to do better. Mm -hmm. This dovetails with certain Christian sermons about how miserable you are as a worm and you have no, <laughs> no right to exist if it weren't for the grace of God. Yeah. So there's been a countervailing tradition mm -hmm. theologically and environmentally. Mm -hmm. So part of that is accenting original blessing as well as original sin, mm -hmm. the giftedness of creation, the beauty of creation, the goodness of the human person. And remember, in Genesis, after each moment of creation, long before we humans, we unfeathered bipeds ever stood erect to look at a night sky, after each moment of creation, God saw that it was good. Now, we're not around yet, mm -hmm. according to the Genesis narrative, mm -hmm. as human species. It has an intrinsic divine value, all of it, mm -hmm. before we're on the scene to appreciate it or destroy it. So from a theological perspective, even looking at that progression in Genesis, what right do we have to destroy what was deemed good and created directly by the divine? Mm -hmm. Pope Francis, is in his encyclical of 2015, Laudato Si, talks about this. Mm -hmm. With each species that is lost, we will no longer hear that animal sing. We will no longer learn from that animal. We will no longer understand what it's trying to communicate to us. Mm. We have no such right, he says. We have no such right to destroy that. Because back to an earlier comment about the book of 
creation and as a source of revelation. With each ecosystem destroyed or species destroyed, we're tearing out a page of that scripture and putting it into a garbage heap. We're deleting it from the mainframe of our theological consciousness. We don't have that right. That's hubris, and that's an original sin. So for many theologians, original sin is thinking we're God. We don't have any other kinds of barriers or boundaries. We can do what the heck we want. Mm -hmm. We're a little lower than the angels, and we were given dominion over the creatures. That's right. So this whole notion of dominion is a huge area of scholarship. Mm -hmm. Douglas Hall, whom I mentioned earlier, wrote a book, Dominion as Stewardship. And he wrote a book called The Steward, looking at dominion, this whole term, both in its Hebrew original and in its various translations. It does not mean domination. It means in community. And there is leadership in that community, but it is a community nonetheless. Mm. And so it's persons in community form a, a system of a unity, of mm. a dominion, mm. a divine dominion. Mm -hmm. So that interpretation fits nicely with certain economic and political trajectories. Mm -hmm. And what we have in the United States is a certain group of Christians who have allied themselves with the Republican Party over a few key issues, but really are speaking politically rather than biblically or theologically when they deny climate change or they support President Trump in his denial of climate change. This is a co-optation of a scriptural message. I was one time teaching a course in Memphis, Tennessee on ecological theology, and I showed a documentary called God is Green. It's a Bill Moyers documentary about the evangelical American church and its approach to the environment. And some of these MDiv students, Masters of Divinity students, who were going on to ministry, came from evangelical backgrounds. And they saw person after person, leader after leader in the evangelical community, denying climate change and environmental destruction. And they knew the evidence was there. And they said they felt sick watching that. And most of these students were African-American. Mm. And they made the parallel between the Southern Baptist community dissing Martin Luther King, actively pursuing racist policies, all based on scripture in their view. And they saw it, that this is a co-optation for political and cultural reasons and economic reasons, not for theological reasons. And they were able to see how a message can be corrupted by ideology, economic, and political forces. We have wellspring sociologically to think on this through Max Weber, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So part of Max Weber's thesis is that Christianity in Calvinistic Geneva and the, the Calvinistic cantons of Europe took off economically, and they helped create vibrant economic enclaves, whereas the Catholic cantons tended to stay in a more feudal order. Well, why was that? Well, part of it, he thought, was this message of predestination that John Calvin had preached. A certain number of people are going to be elect. We don't know who they are, don't know how many there are. Just by dint of God's grace, they're going to get into heaven. No one knows who they are. However, if you're successful in your business, if you're an upstanding citizen, if you're good to your wife and family as a man, or you're a good mother or a good son, if you are following the rules of the faith and prospering, that might be an indication that you're achieving God's smile. Mm -hmm. 
therefore, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism became merged. So working hard, making money, being successful was seen as a little glimmering mm -hmm. of divine election. Mm -hmm. This is why the televangelists that we watch on television in the United States, for example, don't come out in burlap cloths with rope cinchers mm -hmm. and sandals. <laughs> Rolex watches, fancy, yeah. expensive suits, lots of jewelry. Well, many people see this as a misdirection mm -hmm. of understanding the humility and dependency we have on the mercy of God. Would you consider this kind of Christian um, capitalism and anti-environmentalism? Do you think that has a uniquely religious or Christian cause? That's a probing question. I'm, I don't have an easy answer for that, but I'm glad you've asked it because it's an important thing to chew on. Mm -hmm. Someone um, just uh, shared with me this uh, article about consumerism as a new religion. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a famous article by David Loy, The Religion of the Marketplace. And David Loy is a Buddhist scholar, but he articulates that since the collapse of the Soviet Union and China joining the market economy, that consumerism has saran-wrapped itself around the globe as the world's first truly global religion. Mm. And he has a lot of uh, reflection on that. Mm -hmm. Does that relate to the relationship of Western Christianity to consumer capitalism? Well, it probably does, mm -hmm. because part of this was exported through the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and other organizations that were formed after World War II through the Bretton Woods Agreement to help globalize Western economy. So in that sense, yes. Is consumerism a world religion? That's debatable. But does consumerism have its antecedents in a Western economic paradigm that was infused by this understanding of the role of the human in a Christian perspective? I would say yes. And you believe, you, I mean, you hold that justice, equity, and social good are essential to Christianity. Yes. And yet it is possible that those who profess a very deep faith and probably experience a very deep subjective reality of that faith in their lives, are still able to reject these requirements in a broader sphere and also are able to maintain their anti-environmentalism. This is one of the great tragedies of religious community, Christian or otherwise. I was just at a conference at Western University on the legacy of Pope Francis thus far, and there was a Catholic scholar from San Antonio, Texas. Mm -hmm. And he said, there are 138 gated communities in San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> wow. It's not a huge town. No. 138. People withdrawing from the common good. People withdrawing from a normal situation where you have a variety of multiracial people on your streets. Mm -hmm. They've withdrawn behind, in some cases, patrolled walls. This happens in religious communities when people withdraw, withdraw from the covenant with complexity, ethnic, political, cultural, economic, ecological complexity. I want something simple. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to have my little community, and we're all going to think alike, and we won't be challenged. I think people have a hunger for justice. I think they have a hunger for community. I think people can be very confused and scared. Mm -hmm. And people can play on that politically, religiously, economically, and profit from it. I think that's happened a lot in our contemporary complexion. Mm -hmm. 
demographically speaking, with this kind of privatized personal life way. Mm -hmm. And this happens in religion, where it's my relationship with my God, my Savior, whatever the religion might be. Outsiders and other faith communities might be a challenge to that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to move in that direction. Mm -hmm. There's a, a kind of sense that our personal relationship, and in a Christian context, our personal salvation is the most important thing that we can mm -hmm. articulate and preserve. Mm -hmm. That's accented in certain communities. Mm -hmm. That's why, since World War II in particular, but beginning in the early 20th century in Christianity, there was the social gospel movement, and then later the common good tradition. And this has been expressed very theoretically uh, and richly in the Catholic social teaching tradition. So beginning in the late 1800s um, with Rerum Novarum, uh, an encyclical where the Pope uh, Leo begins to articulate the suffering of working class people mm -hmm. and says this is a concern for the church, that the church cannot stand outside social and economic injustice. Mm -hmm. This evolves quite amazingly over the 20th century. And so by the time the U.S. Uh, Catholic bishops um, came out against uh, you know, some of the aspects of nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. it would become very controversial. Mm -hmm. One archbishop in Seattle, Raymond Hunthausen, he actually said to build a nuclear weapon is a sin. He was actually chastised. But he was pushing the envelope mm -hmm. of where this Catholic social teaching had gone. Mm -hmm. Basically what this articulates is to know God is to do justice. Mm. And you can't consider yourself in right relationship with the divine if you are engaged in oppressing other people. Mm. And Pope Francis has retrieved this tradition mm -hmm. and he's applied it to ecology. Mm -hmm. So his notion of integral ecology says social and ecological issues are seamlessly tied up mm -hmm. in one seamless garment. Mm -hmm. And so we can't talk about ecological injustice without talking about social injustice because often the same people and the same ecosystems are steamrolled by the same economic and political forces. Mm -hmm. This is a combined worldview of oppression that we have to rethink. Action on behalf of justice is a constitutive dimension of the preaching of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, look at Jesus. He took on the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. He was killed as a political prisoner after being tortured and faced with capital punishment mm -hmm. as he spoke out around injustice and corruption and talked about universal love. It's hard to build an empire when everyone is loved equally by God. Who are you going to oppress? Who are you going to enslave? Mm -hmm. Who are you going to make war against? Well, that's a little revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And Jesus was a revolutionary. And he was killed as a political upstart, as a political prisoner. Mm -hmm. That's what this tradition also articulates. Yes, there's love, forgiveness, kindness, but there's also a preaching against injustice. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement brings that to bear on racism in the United States. But back to this notion of tone and holier-than-thou sanctimonium. Martin Luther King is beautiful on this. One time he was asked, you know, Martin, how can you talk about loving your enemy when they're bashing your head in? And Martin Luther King experienced his house bombed, he was stabbed, he had been beaten, roughed up by police. How do you talk about loving those guys? And he said, well, the ancient Greeks come to our aid and their notions of love. 
So there's the notion of eros, love of beauty, and romantic love. And he said, I wrote a lot of poems to Coretta. I, I know about that. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second notion is philia, friendship. Love people to go out to a beer with, have friends to you know, socialize with. You have a good rapport with them. That's a love of friends and friendship. But he said the third one is what we're looking at, agape love, agape. Respecting and loving others because God loves them, because they have a place in creation. It doesn't mean you want to go out and have a beer with them or that you want to marry them, but you have respect and love for them. You want good for them. You do not wish them evil. That's what we're talking about when we talk about love of neighbor. This was expressed in the civil rights movement years later in an encounter John Lewis had with a former racist brute. Getting a call from a, a young man said, can my father and I come to see you? John Lewis, who was a student Christian leader with Martin Luther King, is now a venerable congressman in the United States. And so he said, of course, you can come. And this man and his son come. And he, this boy says, uh, John, my dad has something to tell you. Remember during the sit-ins at the Woolworth counter when African-American and white activists would do sit-ins in all-white lunch counters? Remember when one guy came and beat your head in silly? And he's, the man said, I just want to say I'm sorry. I feel terrible. I've wanted to apologize for a long time. Can you forgive me? And John said, of course I can forgive you. And he said, I gave him a big hug. We all cry. He said, that's what this movement was about. That's agape love. And I hope he will lead a life of dignity and compassion. I want what's good for him. So this is important when talking to people who are polluting the earth, denying climate change, dumping toxins. Is that wrong? And does that have to be protested? Absolutely. Do the people who do it have to be demonized? No. Should they be? Never. That's what Christianity can bring to this conversation. It's part of the Christian's job description to love the other person and to love the enemy. Sometimes when I talk to Christian teachers or Catholic school groups, I said, imagine having that in your job description. Love everyone the way you were loved. Wow, that's a beautiful part of the job description. Be joyful, be compassionate, be kind, be loving. That's not, again, something you do after work. That's ingrained in your very life way. And that has to be ingrained in whatever life way Christians take when they go out and talk about environmentalism. Because if it's that pointed finger, holier-than-thou, sanctimonious approach, it's not going to work. In fact, it could exacerbate the situation. And so this is kind of lovingly holding each other's hands as we move into a new reality. I often think of the song by Bruce Springsteen where he has the line, we're all waist deep in the big muddy. All of us have dirty skirts and jeans from this world. None of us is pristine. In light of that, how do we try and get traction? How do we try and move out of the mud into a better place? Well, it's not by saying, you're dirtier than I am. It's by saying, I'll give you a hand. Can you give me a hand? Let's try and get the higher ground. That's what we're about, about now, an invitation to higher ground, an invitation to use the words of Abraham Lincoln, to speak to the better angels of our being, ecologically, socially, economically, particularly in a time of politicians dissing each other and dissing whole swaths of the human family, of building walls. 
that separate the poor from the wealthy, of making our communities gated communities nationally as well as locally. The voice of love, compassion, and acceptance are more important than ever. And that does it for our interview with Professor Stephen Sharper. We would like to thank you very much, Mr. Sharper, for joining us on the show. And after this music break, we will be going back to Saren and Lauren in studio. But we are going to listen to a song called The Light Is You by Said the Whale. pre-taped program today we are uh, we're on sort of our summer semester if you will so we never miss any shows but we do uh, we do let people take vacation so uh, thank you very much to Stefan and Dave and the guest uh, today for occupying the majority of the show uh, I'm going to uh, as they are off I'm also going to be off next weekend we're doing a little exchange so uh, you'll hear more of them next week uh, but I'm going to be taking the last couple of minutes here with the show we don't actually don't have a ton of time they did a really good job of uh, having a great interview there but just with a few minutes we've got our correspondent Lauren on the phone Lauren Latour are you there? Yes I am Hi thank you for joining us So glad to be here so um, I told you uh, when we had our pre-chat that I was like in a sort of uh, like end of summer mood and really didn't, I, I, I'm all out of my feisty weedies. So uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, the BC fire a little bit, but um, I think light on news, high on feelings today is, was my I, thought. I love it. Let's get mushy. Okay. So I'm going to let you take point a little bit on the BC fire. Of course, we've been um, um, hearing news reports about that over the last little while. It gets lost in uh, somewhat of a deluge of other fire stories. But, um, of course, these are uh, a new round of fires happening in, in BC. Can you add some detail to that, Lauren? Yeah, for sure. I, f- I feel like our listeners don't need don't need too much detail. But um, last I checked, there was something like 600 fires burning out west, which... Um, honestly sounds like an apocalyptic nightmare. <laughs> um, but, but one of the things you and I were talking about last night was the prevalence of articles that we're seeing that aren't really, obviously there are many articles that are dealing with the climate change side of things per se. Um, and there aren't really even as many articles dealing with just sort of like, this is a, this is a forest fire, this is where it is, this is why it's happening. But we're starting to see articles that are really sort of Almost, almost instructional, helping people deal with sort of the immediate effects and the immediate risks of wildfires and how best to evacuate and what measures they should be taking um, to sort of prevent damage and injury in their own lives 
and how that's sort of an interesting tell of, of a of sort of shift in the era that we're experiencing. We've we are we're no longer in sort of the climate skepticism phase where climate change is something that's happening far off in the future. We're also really not in the climate action phase, and now we're just sort of in the like learning to survive and live in the apocalypse phase, still without really acknowledging that it's climate related, but. But yeah. somehow we, we we've all we've all embraced this change, and embraced that this is what life looks like going on for for the foreseeable future. And people are now just sort of struggling to get by and figuring out how to reorient themselves and behave in this new in this new um, uh, not to use the word like I'm not trying to be punny, but climate in in the new climate that mm-hmm. we're. That we're living in yeah so one of the um and without a hint of um uh humor in all, in all seriousness um uh, there's mm-hmm. been uh making the the rounds in a few um occasionally um hu- humorous context is the intention but of course it's it's to make a serious point but of course i'm forgetting the comic strip but it's been uh making an awful lot of rounds recently the the dog in the house that's on fire with the this is fine thing um yeah but if you uh if you go to uh your google machine and you just type in bc wildfire you'll see uh a whole bunch of different versions google i believe has actually constructed their own there's also some that have been posted by various fire services and whatnot as well and if you look at the affected area map um it's everywhere uh, and I think it's really important to put your actual eyes on that um, and then ask the question, I think, sort of, you know, what's being done about that. And the the thing I was thinking about, uh, Lauren, and I don't mean to sidetrack you so uh, early yeah. on in our conversation here, but uh, one of the things I was thinking about was I've, uh, I'm a big fan of sci-fi as uh, people who listen to the show know. And I was thinking about, like, you know, if we were on, like, a, a spaceship and we had uh, uh, 100 people and uh, say, say it was, you know, we were getting into the age, uh, age of space tourism. And so say we were doing some commercial uh, astronaut flight and there was a couple of uh, a couple of engineers and professional people who were actual astronauts and then the rest of people were just kind of along for the ride. Maybe they're tourists, a bunch of rich people or something like that. And something goes wrong with the space shuttle. Do you ask the scientists or do you take a vote what you should do? And the reason I was thinking of that was that I think in that example, uh, or any other example you could construct that's similar to that, the is on, uh, the uh, the answer is obvious, right? If we're watching a movie, um, and you'd be yelling at the screen, "What are you doing, you stupid people? The scientists, or the, you know, the engineers, you know, trying to save your lives? Why are you not listening to them?" Um, but yet we have this sort of situation here where I think a whole bunch of people who are not experts are making decisions and they're they're making decisions extremely confidently, which is con- con- uh, convincing a lot of other people that they must know what they're talking about. And it just gave me this real impression of sort of the blind leading the blind off a cliff. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, no, well, and I, I mean, I, it's sort of because for me, it's just like I can't un- I, I can I can't disentangle in any way sort of the political reality with the sort of physical uh you know f- f- uh the cl- climatic uh reality that's there um and noticing this this great um disparity uh like we yeah. were saying like looking at all these articles and you know a lot of them say you know state of emergency but it's like it's almost like we've heard that so often now it doesn't mean anything like uh, they're, they're saying all the right words all the articles say all the right words but it's like none of the follow-through that you would expect as a consequence of that no, exactly. The uh, the the one article I was looking at from the CBC, it it opens. Um, it's it's sort of it's the story again talking about measures people can take to to prepare themselves. But it's it's through the context of a father and his young daughter who live outside of Kamloops, and and it opens with the father commenting on how um, he and his daughter have lived through wildfires for the past two years, and and they're genuinely worried they're going to lose their house this time. And it's like that's 
bananas that they've lived through wildfires for two years and can no longer insure their home because of it. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> and this is just sort of, it's, it's the new normal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so and another thing that I was thinking about with that um, train of thought, Lauren, was, of course, is that, you know, we're, we're here, uh, whether we're here in the studio or yourself uh, virtually teleporting into the studio uh, right. or people, you know, going about their, their lives and stuff like that, there is sort of, and we've talked about on the show, this sort of dynamic about, like, uh, you know, people the, with the fires that happened last year in, uh, uh, in Alberta, uh, in Edmonton. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, some immediate, completely accurate and completely fair and completely justified immediate comments about, hey, this is climate change. And then people say, well, this is not the time and all that stuff. Um, but it's sort of like it's getting into the point where it's kind of like going. It's like sort of constant. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and I'm just wondering, like, I, I'm sort of wondering at like this point, because the clearly there will be a reaction. I'm just, I guess I'm confused at this point what it's going to be because I kind of figured like my, like what I've been saying for a long time is I've kind of been figuring like it's going to take a really visible disaster, sadly, to get people's attention and then people will do something. And what I'm sort of, I sort of feel like I've been proven wrong here and that I'm kind of confused because there clearly is a disaster and it's, and it's almost, uh, you know, we're, we're on the cusp of it just being permanent state of disaster. Um, and yet I haven't seen that response. I, I'm quite shocked. I thought that that, I thought that that would really do it. So I, I, I don't want to, I don't, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll let you comment on that, but like, I, I don't want to, because of that context, I don't want to sort of get socked off onto that. And what I, what I was thinking about, uh, and I'll let you, sorry, answer to both things, but sort of my ultimate point there was as well is that while we're doing that, and that is absolutely right to go out and say, this is caused by climate change. We, if you want to stop this from happening, we need to do something about that. Um, and I, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily insinuating that I think anyone specifically has forgotten this message, but I'm just sort of taking a moment to remind myself publicly and and maybe for some of the listeners as well that while we're doing that we also have to make sure that we're reaching out with compassion to the people that are affected and that you know the frustration and anger at not taking action is directed at the politicians but um if we're not also taking the time to stop uh, to stop when these things happen and and just be regular uh citizens offering to support to our to our sort of fellow canadians um and do that without like i think we need to do both things but i don't think we can do them at the same time does that make sense Mm -hmm. No, I yeah, I think you're right. I think I think the point about reaching out with compassion and care and making sure we're we're really taking care of each other throughout this whole horrific ordeal with there's and there's no end in sight. Like it's yeah, if if we make it to the other side of of whatever the climate revolution is going to look like, and, and half of us are gone um, for whatever reason, it we ha- we we haven't really made it. We haven't really won anything. So we we can't let people slip through the cracks on the way. So we're going to have, uh, when the show post goes up today, I'm going to, um, I was not able to find one before the show, but I'm going to see if there's, if there is any sort of resources for people actually being able to help, uh, and do, uh, do anything, uh, more d- like very specific and tangible. I'm going to be attaching that to the show post. If I don't, uh, see anything and it comes on uh, and any of the listeners see something later, they'd like to alert me to it so that it gets attached to the show post. Uh, please go ahead and do that. Um, but I think that, uh, I'm sort of, yeah, I'm sort of feeling like lost about what to, to do next. <laughs> yeah and and i think that's an okay place to be sometimes um dealing with the things that when some those of us who sort of work and deal with climate change on a daily basis when you're sort of confronted with this idea of of your sort of own existential crisis and theoretical peril on a daily basis um it it yeah yeah it's easy to fall into a really bizarre headspace and especially when you're sort of confronted with these things 
in, in a real life basis when you can go on Facebook and see friends posting pictures of, of the skyline in, in Edmonton or, or Nanaimo and the, and the skies are <laughs> orange and gray. Um, it all becomes very, very real. Um, and when the conversation has been theoretical for so long, that, that can be jarring. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, I think it's okay to be in a weird headspace and it's, it's okay to feel introspective about these things sometimes and to, and to really take a few moments and, and sit with your feelings and figure out how best you want to move forward as an individual and how, and how you feel you can best contribute to these changing times. What actually got me onto that that train of thought was I was listening to a radio interview. There's uh, somebody I like very much on the YouTube there. Uh, David Packman does a pretty widely syndicated uh, program in the United States. Uh, Very well known for doing uh, uh, interviews with a wide range of interesting people. And and recently he was speaking to a former uh, Klan member, a former uh, skinhead um, who now runs an anti-hate sort of like uh, de-brainwashing uh, organization and and he was talking about one of the questions, very obvious questions that this person was asked was, you know, what got you out of it? How did you get out of that? You know, they yeah. talked they talked for quite some time about how he got in and and when they got to how he got out though, I, I was really struck by his story because it wasn't. I mean, it was sort of. I'm sort of not surprised, but I was also I was a bit surprised it was that simple. And you'll you'll figure out. Everyone will figure out why I'm mentioning this in just a half a second. Um, but the the his answer essentially was that he was um you know while he was busy being a skinhead, it wasn't his full time job. He opened a record store because he was also into music primarily selling white power music, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But he said what happened was that over the years, uh, a bunch of people from all of the minorities and groups that he'd been taught to hate came in and patronized his store anyway. And they knew exactly what he was selling. He had like white power uh, telling the story that he has like, you know, white, like white power records on the wall and that these people just came in and treated him with, with decency anyway. And then after a while, he realized that he couldn't reconcile that with, with what he'd been taught. And it's really quite a beautiful story. I mean, I'm kind of doing the summary version, but you know, we, uh, you can go and listen to that. The reason I'm mentioning it was, is cause it reminds me a lot of, uh, cause I was also seeing in the paper this morning about a Toronto sun, uh, journalist who was uh, apparently attacked by apparently a protester. I'm just saying that not because I'm actively skeptical, but because I don't know what really mm-hmm. happened. Um, talking about that sort of thing. And it just made me think that like, you know, I, you know, we get pretty worked up here on the show about like politicians and political ideas and people's platforms and, and calling people out for their stupidity. But you know, when it gets down to that interpersonal level, like what we were talking about a minute ago, it comes, it comes in two forms as well. And I think they're both as important. And one of them is to reach out with compassion to the people who are being affected regardless of their political opinions. And the other one is that, that, you know, often if we want to really break that down as hard as it can be, Sometimes just being compassionate and sitting through someone's uh, really aggressive, um, you know, uh, hate for you or because things they think they know about you because of, in this case, your political opinions, but it could easily be something else. Sometimes just not reacting and being compassionate to them can get through them. So I don't mean disarmament in a rhetorical sense. I think we should continue to be extremely aggressive rhetorically. Um, but just taking a moment to remind myself and, and perhaps the, the listeners that, that that the opposite should be true in interpersonal uh, st- stances, whether or not we're talking about people who have been affected by wildfires or just people who are, you know, very loudly and very aggressively wrong about something really important, uh, that screaming at those people are not going to help either. I uh, think I accidentally and very conveniently almost ran out the clock. Yes, you've got about a minute. Can I can I ask you for a closing comment here, Lauren? Um, yeah, sure. I, I think you kind of said it all. That was, that was <laughs> a really nice message for a Friday morning for, for people to sit with going into the weekend. Yeah, um, I guess to listeners, don't don't be afraid to reach out and take care of the people around you. Nobody can nobody can can handle this fight on their own. I think that's if if, if we have learned nothing else from the last twenty years of fighting climate change, is that 
no one group or no one individual or no one country is going to be able to solve this. And uh, in order to work well together and work as a team, we need to hold compassion and care for each other. So take some time this weekend and tell someone you love them. <laughs> Whoa, this got really mushy. It got, see what happens when we kick Dave and <laughs> Stefan out of the studio? It gets, really, it gets really mushy really fast. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This has been lovely. (laughs) So uh, Lauren Latour are uh, moving across Canada. Uh, Who knows where she is now? A correspondent uh, (laughs) joining us as well by phone. Uh, As I mentioned, Stefan and Dave were off this week. Uh, I will be off next week and you'll have the pleasure of their company once again uh, this time in the live. Uh, And then we are also, I will just make as a final quick announcement as well that uh, we do largely take, we take a lot, we take, we take a little bit of time off. We don't stop doing the the show during the summer, but we do definitely take a relax on the interviews. We are getting ready for the new season in uh, going forward in September as well. Uh, take this opportunity to make an uh, announcement that if you have any speakers uh, or uh, interview guest suggestions, folks that you think are really cool that you've met that you uh, maybe think more people should know about, uh, go ahead and send us an email. We'd be happy to uh, see what we can do. So you can email us, find the show, greenmajority.ca. Have a good green weekend. Stay cool, and we'll see you all real soon.